would love for you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to Hebrews chapter 4. If you didn't bring Scripture with you, no problem. It'll be on the screen, but also that red book in front of you is our pew Bible. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take it home. If you don't own a physical copy of Scripture, we'll replace it as soon as you can take it. And uh, we'll leave that there for a moment. You know, here we are. Boy, it feels like the end of May today, and yet it's the end of January. And we are in the fourth week of a sermon series exploring prayer and the powerful invitation that God gives us that we have this authority, this power, this intimacy that God gives us. And uh, this will wrap up and move into a season of Lent. And wanted to let you know our Ash Wednesday service is in the evening. That's also the same day as Valentine's Day this year. And as Ash Wednesday and that season of Lent moves throughout both February and March, Easter Sunday is earlier than maybe you typically think of uh, in your mind. It's the last Sunday in March of this year. I wanted to let you know our session just approved uh, the adding of a, an additional worship service. So we have our 6 a.m. sunrise, a 9 a.m., an 11 a.m., and a 1 p.m. on Easter Sunday because our numbers continue to grow and we want to be able to create space for the many guests that will make it on. Uh, but I'm intentionally wearing Easter white today while also having my green stole. You know, uh, stole is often a reminder of where we are in the liturgical year, and green is what is referred to as ordinary time. Much of life, you know, just feels like ordinary time. But we can forget that every Sunday is also referred to as Resurrection Sunday because we are Easter people 24-7. And even in January, we need to be reminded of the power that we have as Easter people. And I'm wearing the white to remind you and to remind me that I believe our prayer lives will be radically different if we lived and prayed as Easter people. The reality that Jesus lived, died, buried, rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, that reality changes how we pray. However, the sad reality, I think, that most Christians don't pray as Easter people. We pray like people prayed in the Old Testament era. And so my hope is that as you hear this message that you would ask the Holy Spirit to help you reflect, am I praying out of an Old Testament paradigm or am I praying as Easter people. Let me read for us. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And what a joy it is to be with you on this Sunday morning. The writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness. Let me hear you say boldness. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This, friends, the reading of God's Word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. 
Now, it's also, with it being the last Sunday in January, it's a championship Sunday in football. Some of you uh, maybe are looking forward to some of these games. You know, I'm, a, I'm in a bit of a pickle. My wife was born in Kansas City. My mom was born in Baltimore. And some of you are like, well, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, turn on the television at noon and you'll find out. Uh, I pray for a good game. <laughs> but, you know, if any of you watch that... Um, you'll see that decisions need to be made. And here's what's interesting. There's a lot of people in the stands in those two football games today who will wish they had the authority to make the decisions that they want to make. You know, all the fans will be like, throw the ball! And the team doesn't throw the ball. You know, they'll say, go for the extra point, the two point, whatever, and they won't do it, right? It's interesting, the fans don't have the authority to make decisions on the field. The trainers don't have the decisions to really dictate what's on the field. You know, there's support staff and there's personnel, and, you know, as you kind of move up the chain, uh, you might get to a defensive coordinator. Well, they've got a lot of authority, a lot more authority than a trainer, a lot more authority than the fans. And then you've got offensive coordinators, of course. They've got a lot of authority compared to other people in the stadium. And ultimately, there's the head coach. I mean, it's even more authority. The, the authority of a head coach can override a defensive coordinator if there is one or offensive coordinator if there is one. But then also, you know, some of the best teams have quarterbacks and actually players that can call an audible. And they have the authority, even if it's an offensive lineman, even if it's a wide receiver, even if it's, you know, any player, they have the opportunity to, they've been granted the authority to make a decision, right? When I think about what's going to happen today and all the decisions that are being made, I wonder how many of us, when we think about prayer, I wonder how many of us think biblically. That if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, that you have actually, I want you to take this in, you have been promoted to the highest level of spiritual authority in the cosmos, according to Scripture. That when you say yes to Jesus and you receive Him as your Lord and Savior, you then receive the Holy Spirit. Scripture says you are now hidden in Christ, which we'll get to in a moment, and Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in you by faith. You've now been promoted to the highest level in the cosmos. There is no upward mobility past that moment in which Jesus has adopted you in God's family, given you the Holy Spirit, and ready for this, set you apart to be part of the royal priesthood. I think the big problem of the church today is that we forget that we are Easter people, and we forget that we have been called to pray as priests. Now, how many of you would you say that you wake up every day and you think of yourself as a priest. Let's see how many hands go up. Okay. We have a lot of discipling that we need to do as a church that hasn't been done. You see, you have a framework. I might have a framework that here's the word priest through Catholic or Episcopal lenses. But did you know, as you will discover throughout the 11 minutes left of the sermon, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you become part of the royal priesthood, and Jesus is our high priest. 
Now, to understand this, I've got to take a step back just for a moment and give you a little backstory on, you know, what is a biblical view? What is the priesthood from a biblical point of view? Long before the Episcopalian denomination, long before the Catholic Church, long before Orthodox priests and such, well, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things good, created you and me, humanity, made in the image of God, and it was very good. Scripture says that we got to experience the shalom of God. We were whole in our relationship with God, each other, ourselves, in creation. We had a face-to-face encounter with the maker of the heavens and the earth. There was no sadness, no cancer, no death, no taxes, no allergies, no bitterness, no religiosity, nothing you had to do in order to earn God's love or God's presence We were whole in our relationship. And sadly, the first humans, they chose their way rather than God's way, and brokenness entered into the story. Shalom was fractured. Shalom was broken. They, in Genesis 3, covered themselves, as it says in Scripture, with fig leaves. And we've been trying to cover up ourselves ever since. I think religion, by definition, is human effort, human activity to cover over our shortcomings, to to earn or make a way for us to be in relationship with God. And how interesting in Genesis chapter 3, you can read it later, the first sacrifice is made because God does something that God had never done before, took a life. We don't know what kind of animal, but it says that God covered over the first humans with the skins of an animal to atone for, to cover over their brokenness. And all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we see this progression of God longing to be in relationship with God's people. And there's moments in which God's people remember that, and they turn to God, they worship God, they remember who God is and who they are, and things thrive and things are right, but then they forget and things begin to unravel, and then God calls them back. You can read about in Exodus, for example, that the God's people are pulled off into slavery in Egypt for over 430 years. God hears the cries of the people. God commissions Moses at the age of 80 with the help of Aaron to go and ultimately to be part of the rescue and the redemption and the salvation of the people of Israel. And they're led out of Egypt, and now they enter into the wilderness on the way to the promised land, which, by the way, that that journey should have only taken 11 days. But they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, not because they got physically lost, but because they were spiritually lost. They kept on wanting to go back to Egypt, saying we had it so much better back there. They were groaning. They were grumbling. They were crying out to God. In the midst of that, God does many things. God descends upon God's people, upon the mountain. There's the pillar of cloud and fire. And ultimately, God gives the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments are God's heart for God's people on how to live, on how to orient their lives towards God. And this is after one year in the wilderness. And those Ten Commandments are placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is placed in basically a a traveling, a mobile representation of God's dwelling place, a place called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle existed for 400 years. until Solomon received a call from God to to build the temple. And if any of you watch a football game today, I want you to imagine how big this is, the tabernacle for those 400 years moving throughout the wilderness. And and once they 
settled in the promised land is roughly a quarter of the size of an American football field. And in that massive tabernacle, there was a tent of meeting, and there was an altar of incense, there was the holy place, there was an outer veil, there was an inner veil, and then on the inside of that inner veil was called the Holy of Holies, and in that place was the Ten Commandments resting in the Ark of the Covenant. The top of that was referred to as the Bema or the Mercy Seat. And the holiness of God, which, by the way, holy in the Hebrew Scriptures simply means to be different, to be distinct, to be set apart. To say that God is holy in love is to say that God loves differently than the world loves. To say that God is holy in power is to say that God is different, altogether distinct. No one can compare to God in power and in might and in justice and in beauty and in love and in mercy and forgiveness. And once a year, there was this very significant event that was essentially the culmination of all the sacrifices, of all the following of the law, of all the festivities, and it was the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. Some of you might call it Yom Kippur. You can read about this in Leviticus 16, very detailed, where the high priest went through a very significant cleansing process, ritualistic purification, ready for this, to enter into the Holy of Holies, to go to God on behalf of the entire people as a representative, and then to come back to the people as a representative of God. And year after year after year, God's people would experience such tremendous reconciliation when the high priest would go on their behalf, covering over all the brokenness, all the sin of their entire year. It was a very significant, very holy, very, very special day. But there was a bit of timidity in that day. Many historians have said that there's uh, evidence that the high priest actually would have a rope tied around their waist, not as a fashion statement. But that rope was tied around their waist, and the rope went out from the Holy of Holies, so that if for some reason they weren't perfectly purified, if they weren't uh, measuring up in a certain way, and let's say the wrath of God or the holiness of God struck them down dead, and you heard a thump, well, the priests weren't going to run in to get the guy and face the same doom. They would, they would drag in their mind if that was a possibility. There's no evidence of that ever happening. But what's so significant is that they went in with timidity. Now, some of you are like, why this history lesson, Drew? What does that have to do with me? Well, I read you the Hebrews passage. Take a look at John 17. This is the longest prayer found in Scripture that Jesus prays. There could have been longer prayers that Jesus prayed. If they were, they weren't recorded in Scripture. This is the longest prayer all of John 17, I'm going to read for you a very short section. Up until this moment, Jesus prayed for unity, prayed for the disciples, and now He prays for you and for me, those who would come to believe at some future state. This is, this is what He prays, beginning in verse 15. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. 
They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify, remember that word for a moment, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, the word sanctified literally means to make one holy. Again, holiness means to be altogether distinct and different, to be set apart. Again, in the Old Testament era, you couldn't sanctify yourself just like that. There was this ongoing process to make yourself acceptable in God's presence, essentially to restore the experience of what it was like in the Garden of Eden. That's why there was such significant laws and sacrifices and practices, but that was only once a year and only the high priests on behalf of all the people. And what's so remarkable is that Jesus is taking all of this history upon Himself, all of this imagery upon Himself, and He begins to pray for all believers everywhere. God, would You sanctify them? Would You make them holy? Would You set them apart for a purpose? Would You sanctify them in the truth? Now take a look at this, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the last verse. First Peter 2, referring to Jesus. Come to Him a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, let's take a step back one more time. Jesus prays, God, would you make them holy? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, all of God's people are now part of the royal priesthood. Hebrews chapter 4 says that now we can enter the throne of grace with boldness and confidence because Jesus is our high priest. It also says that He passed through the heavens in Hebrews chapter 4. What's going on here? Let me end with this. And if you can allow this truth to sink into your heart and into your mind and into your life, it will revolutionize your prayer life. When Jesus lived for those 33 years… He said about Himself that I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Everything from the Mosaic Law, everything from the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus fulfilled to the T, unlike any human being. And when Jesus went to the cross, He didn't go as a victim. He went victorious as our sacrifice, as our Passover lamb. And the writer of Hebrews says that when Jesus did that on the cross, He put an end to the sacrificial system. And so he went as a sacrifice and as our high priest. He goes to God on behalf of the people and now comes back to the people on behalf of God. And he is buried, but he defeats death. And he abolishes the law because he fulfilled it. 
And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, how amazing is this that when God looks at you, he looks at you through Christ's perfect record. Not your good deeds, not your bad deeds. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when you pray, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are part of the royal priesthood. And when you pray to Jesus, you have to understand where his location is when you pray. It's not back in history. It's not a figure of your imagination. It's not some ephemeral place out there. Scripture says that Jesus right now, present tense, is at the right hand of God the Father with authority, with might, with power. And Colossians and Galatians say that you are hidden in Christ as you pray. Friends, you are physically here, but you're also spiritually in Christ at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has entered the Holy of Holies, and in Christ you are there also. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit dwells in you by faith. So friends, here's what I'm saying. When you allow this truth to saturate your prayer life, you don't have to wait until a Sunday to have a pastor pray for you. You can go right to God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait to get up to the prayer team to say, oh, well, your prayers count more than my prayers. You can go straight to God through Jesus Christ. In a moment, Pastor Kim is going to lead us in the prayers of the people, a time of silence in the Lord's Prayer. In that moment, you don't just have to listen to her praying. You can imagine that you are in Christ at the right hand of the Father. You have authority. And your authority is higher than any fan or support staff or coach. In Christ, you are part of the royal priesthood. And last week, we talked about what that means when we confess. We can confess with boldness because Christ has paid it all. But also, in that throne of grace in Christ, accepted, beloved by God in Christ, we can pray for the people in our lives. My assignment to you this week is to live out your priestly calling to pray for your neighbors, your family, your friends, your colleagues, to go to God on behalf of the people in your life, and then to go to them on behalf of God. Let's pray. Loving God, we have such a friend in Jesus. Jesus is not a boss. He is not a coach. He is a Savior, a Lord, a high priest a humble king, a friend. Jesus, would your spirit move powerfully in this time but also throughout this week to help us grasp the costliness of what makes it possible for us to have an authority in heaven that is unshakable. Jesus, bless us in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.